October 1999, a Learjet 35 crashed, killing all aboard due to hypoxia. Recently, Christy and I did a investigative video on this. We're going to go behind the scenes on it on this episode of Taking Off Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, we do have the 360 video going so you can see our our world headquarters for podcasting in my office here in Haltom City uh, outside of Fort Worth, Texas. Christy, welcome again. Thank you. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I almost prefer doing this from the hotel room because when I'm here, I have all the microphones and I can hear everything. And I almost feel like I'm doing ASMR. ASMR. Yeah, it's like where people talk really softly and quietly into the microphone. Welcome to taking off, you know. Oh, I guess we could do that. We could talk like this the whole way through. <laughs> and I, I don't know ASMR. I just know that's from like Parks and Rec. They had that those characters oh. who did the radio show. <laughs> yeah, they were joking. It was kind of a oh, spoof on, yeah, on on the radio. But anyway, we're we're here today to talk about something that's not quite as funny. Okay, I remember 1999. Um, I was in a big switch in my life. Um, I left my full-time job to go chase movie making. And that had happened only two months before uh, this event. And I was an avid golfer. Uh, Is a, that what your full-time job was? Golfing, no. I, I wished, though, at the time. I certainly did. I, I played whenever I could. I organized uh, golf tournaments with my clients. I watched golf. I was everything. The way I am about aviation right now was the way I was with golf then. Spooky. Yeah. So I was really, really into golf. And, uh, one of my favorite golfers was Payne Stewart. The guy was, well, he stood out, you know, he wore the, uh, throwback clothes from the early or from the 20th century. He was very garish. He was very his, garish in his clothing and attire. I remember he had the NFL, who sponsored him, and so his his old style clothes would be an NFL team, Chicago Bears or whoever it was. <laughs> it was, uh, but even more than the clothes, his swing was was butter. It was so smooth. For those of us who golf, you look at his swing, and and even his fellow golfers, professional golfers on the tour, um, he out of everybody, he had one of the purest, sweetest swings that there were. See, I've never been a golfer. So I can't really appreciate that. I appreciated some of the other things. I was a teenager when all of this went down. I mean, he, I heard the name Payne Stewart before the crash. So I knew who he was. Um, we've mentioned this before on the podcast, but there's a lot of research and a lot of time that goes into making these, you know, 15 minute videos. It took days for right. us to write the script and go through everything. And I still feel like we didn't get everything that I necessarily wanted into it. Um, it's so some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today is definitely going to be an add on. Right. To this the video is the companion. This podcast is the companion piece for our shorter uh, investigative video. Absolutely. So make sure you go watch that if you haven't. And um, that's our official report. Um, I remember I was in my car just off of I-35 north of downtown Dallas, um, near Inwood and all that. And when I was I was listening to sports radio, um, the ticket, 1310 in, in Dallas-Fort Worth, was a new, relatively new phenomenal, phenomenon. 
and uh, but it was growing. It was huge, and um, it was the news broke on the ticket, and I was glued to the radio from then on. Yeah, I was a teenager. I remember after I got out of school that day, I went home and I turned on the TV, and it was everywhere. It was all over the news. And I just remember going, oh, my gosh. And then as more stuff was coming out, it wasn't until later when I realized that one of the pilots was a young female. Uh, that's when things really started to resonate with me. You know, not that because, uh, you know, these types of incidents don't happen every day, especially in my young teenage brain. You know, you don't have airplanes falling out of the sky like this. And nobody really knew what was going on at the time. And so, um Learning that there was a female pilot, it just hit different. Interesting. For me, uh, what was really bizarre about that, because when the news broke on the radio, the plane was still up there. And by the way, neither one of us were pilots when no, this happened. No. And um, we, were, we were decades away from becoming pilots. So I'm sitting there as an adult. You're a teenager. Um, and I'm we're listening to this play out in real time. You know, they started reporting that there is a private jet that's unresponsive heading north um, over the, the Midwest of the United States. And, and then they, they mentioned and Payne Stewart's on board. So nobody was dead yet. The plane was still flying. And I'm thinking, surely there's a way they can safely bring it down. Yeah, just grab it with a net. You big know, old, big I, old butterfly net. Well, yeah. I was, well, I was thinking more in terms of, um, you know, uh, watch too many movies, and I was doing movie making at time. Can't they just put a guy on a harness out of a C seventeen, and you know, he, you know, Mission Impossible, Kurt Russell, like, you know, somebody, yeah, you know, executive throw action. Tom Cruise out there, he'll get it. Yeah, and they can they can get on board and and save everybody. But um, you know, it, the naivety, of course, of being a lot younger and not being pilots. Um, there is absolutely nothing anyone can do in this situation. And hypothetically, even if they could throw Tom Cruise out there, they didn't really have time to do any of that because no. the airplane had already been in the air for so long. I think it had a little over four hours of fuel on board, like four hours and 45 minutes, I believe was what it was, something like that. And they, I mean, they were coming up against that clock already when the second and third interception happened. So there were three what we call interceptions. There was um, the first one. Well, let's back up a little bit. So the plane, if you watch their video, the plane departed Orlando International at around uh, 9.20 in the morning. And it was on its way to Dallas. Now, the thing about flying from Orlando to Dallas, which I've done in Lola, my 210, it, you don't fly a direct line. No. And the reason why is because of the Gulf of Mexico. Now, is it, can you not fly over the Gulf? Certainly you can. But flying is a risky business, and you minimize your risks whenever possible. And if you can stay within gliding distance of the shore, well, then let's do that. Yeah, usually it's around 100 miles within the shore, depending on the altitude you go up, et cetera. Right, and a Learjet can cut the corner a little bit better than us. But in, um, in flying that, which I have, um, several times, there is a fix in, in airplane, in pilot parlance, a fix is an imaginary place um, on the earth where they designate, you know, uh, it's you know, GPS coordinates or, you know, longitude, latitude coordinates. It is a thing where it's named usually, um, usually five letters, but sometimes three. And um, 
for the again, I'm talking to non-pilots. And they were given the common fix that if you're leaving the Orlando area and you're heading west, it's it's the kind of the the place you go to cut the corner of the Gulf. And it's called Cross City. Yeah, and there's actually an airport there as well. That's right. So um, that's why it's three letters. Right. And so sometimes as well, it'll either be a VOR or an actual airport. So they'll tell us, like, go direct to the Memphis VOR and then, you know, go direct to this next fix, et cetera. Um, so if we go direct to the Memphis VOR, it's MEM. But if we go direct to the Memphis airport, it's KMEM. Right. And so in this case, they wanted them to go to Cross City, which I believe was CTY. I, I think that's right um, because I, Brian and I and his wife just returned from Sun and Fun earlier this year, and we were given Cross City as our fix. Yeah, it's actually a fairly common yeah. fix out there, especially for the GA aircraft. And this is considered a GA aircraft. It was a business jet, but it it was it's a and it's located kind of in the armpit of the Florida. Right, deal. they were not supposed to go over the Gulf. They were actually, their flight plan was to go up to Cross City and then cut across so that they'd see our So let's talk about that. Now, I said it's just, you know, prudence says you don't cut, you don't go straight across the Gulf. But in, in, you know, the different rules, and again, I'm going to talk to the non-pilots, and you fly by a different set of rules depending on your airplane and your mission. And the set of rules that that Lola flies when we fly Lola is, is a set of rules called Part 91. Which is we, what I believe they were flying under. I think they were Part 91. Either okay. one, 91 or 135. I can't right. remember. Right. But there are different rules for going over water. Right. In 91, I can go over water. Oh, you can do what water. you want in 91. Yeah. I don't have to have a life uh, vest for every passenger. I don't have to have a lifeboat. But for um, some flights and different rules, you do and so they may have not had a lifeboat or whatever, and right. so they didn't want to cut the corner. Yeah, like Part 121, which is airline world, we are governed by a set of rules. Like there's there's ETOPS, which means that you're certified for flying across the ocean, for example. And that's where you have the right number of rafts. Every single passenger has a life jacket. Right, exactly. Available. Yes. And, um, but like in my airplane, we can... We can kind of we can fly over the Gulf, but not. We have a certain distance from the shore that we have to be. All right. So the Learjet 35 takes off from Orlando International, begins its climb. Take us through what happened as as it was headed on its way to to the Cross City Fix. Yeah. So it started off very normally. I mean, I've I've taken off out of Florida before, and you climb out. About 30 seconds after you take off, you're handed over to either a center controller or an approach controller, and then they give you further climb instructions. Every air traffic controller has a designated airspace that they are responsible for. So you've got the tower controller, which controls the the immediate vicinity around the airport. And then as you're climbing up, you get handed off to typically out of a bigger airport like Orlando, it's going to be an approach or um, departure controller basically the same thing. You talk to them and they they govern a slightly larger space around that busy airport space. For example, regional approach. So I've got DFW here. I will talk to the DFW tower controllers. They'll hand me off to approach, but approach is also talking to Love Field and Addison and Meacham. So they're kind of t- like governing that whole space around DFW, including the other airports. And then once you get 
higher and further out, you're going to get handed over to a center controller. And that's what happened in this case. They got handed over to a Jacksonville center controller. And, but then you've got it broken down even further. You've got low altitude center controllers, which usually will govern, I think it's below like 23,000, something yeah. like that. And then you've got the high altitude sector. And that's where they'll govern above that. And so they were handed off to the low altitude center controller who gave them climb instructions. Um, I think it was like up what up to 230. And then they were, once they started getting through their airspace, they were handed over to the high altitude sector. And then the high altitude sector said, okay, climb and maintain flight level 390. And that was their filed altitude. But then after that, nothing. Right. And so it, they, they, yeah, radio silence at the, after that that point. And it was only within a few minutes, like six minutes. Yeah, it wasn't super long. So um And 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 the the last point that they were communicative was at around twenty one, twenty two, twenty three thousand feet. Two three oh, yeah. Yeah. So twenty three thousand feet, they were still talking. And then six minutes after twenty three thousand feet, they were not talking. Correct. Yeah. So in that six minutes, uh, what did you think they were climbing at? Two thousand feet a minute? Um, probably around two. Uh, uh, that altitude, that aircraft, depending on how heavy it was, it was probably about fifteen hundred, two thousand feet per minute. I'm not a Lear thirty five okay. pilot. I want to make. But you flew Lear forty five. Right, which is different. It's a different airplane. It's heavier. It's got different air engines on it. So okay. even though it's made by so Lear, it's, it's, it's not different. The same. So if there's any Lear thirty five pilots on here that want to. You know, throw something in the comments and correct yeah, me, please. Like, I'd like to know how fast they're climbing because if they were talking at 23,000 feet and six minutes later they, they did not respond, if they're climbing 2,000 2, feet a minute, so six minutes they could have been 12,000 feet, which would have put them at 35,000. And there's a significant mm -hmm. level. Um, you said in the report five minutes. What I was reading in the aeromedical journals is five to ten minutes at well that's if you're stagnant at that altitude right. they so, were not they were climbing right so at but at 21 22,000 feet you've got five to ten minutes at 35,000 feet which is where they could have been within that six minutes you've got seconds and here's the thing is that it depends it varies person to person and a lot of it is dependent on that person's health yeah a smoker is going to get hypoxic mm -hmm. significantly sooner than a non-smoker. Somebody that lives in a high altitude area like Denver, for example, they're going to be able to, or somebody who's Their like a scuba more diver. Acclimated. Exactly. They're going to acclimate more and it's going to be a lot longer versus somebody like me who does not scuba dive. And I live in a very low altitude area and I have like all my life pretty much. I'm not used to the high altitude. In fact, fun side story. I went to um, Denver one time, went up to go skiing for the first time ever up there, and I actually got altitude sickness and had to <laughs> had to get the little lift down. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, I probably would not last super long in a very high altitude like that. All right. And there were two pilots and there were four passengers, six people on board. And... And due to the fact that it's all different, it's not like they crossed a magic number and everybody passed out at the same time. No, it probably happened, you know, one by one. They It was probably all within the same time frame. But um, being hypoxic like that is a lot like getting inebriated or drinking alcohol or something where you, you maybe start feeling it just hits you a lot faster. And everybody, like we said, everybody's different. 
you're going to get different symptoms at different times. But effectively, it's like getting blackout drunk very quickly, and you don't even know what's happening necessarily. Well, and uh, <laughs> I was going to and tell tell me more about the uh, so you can really compare it to being in, inebriated. Well, I mean, no. I've read I've read the you've studies. read okay. yeah yeah I've never, not that you've ever been inebriated right not that I've ever been inebriated but I've also never been in the hypoxic chamber before okay. which I would really like to do. Uh, Brian Turner has, um, and he says that the, they'll go in there and the uh, the person will uh, or the speaker will have you do math and stuff like that, and you think you're doing just fine and you're doing everything the way they're doing it. You think you're okay. Then when you get out, you're writing gibberish. There is a, a an audio clip out there somewhere on in the YouTube space of a pilot. I don't remember if he was flying a Citation or a Learjet or something. But he's at like, I want to say it was in the 30s, 20s and 30s. And he's talking to the ta- the controllers and he starts slurring his words. He so- he legitimately sounds like he's drunk. And they somehow, somehow coax him into getting the airplane to a lower altitude. And it's like he recovers like that. Well, and that is the thing about hypoxia. The, the cure is oxygen and the effect of the cure is almost instantaneous. Yeah, we so, need to find that clip though. It is. I remember the first time I ever heard that. It was. It was spooky. Yeah. So um, I have felt hypoxic at times, and you know, looking at my blood oxygen and everything else with a safety pilot. And I know that even into the eighties, it's not that big of a deal for me personally because we. Once a month, we would live at 9,000 feet in Colorado. So my body's a little bit acclimated, not a lot, but a little bit. But I would get a headache first. But then after a while, getting really low um, with the blood oxygen, um, I start to get tunnel vision. And that's, you know, you're, you're, you've got your, your rods and cones and the, is it the rods on the outside or the cones on the outside? Whatever it is, those are the first things. Your body will start to shut the extremities down first, right? So the the outside of your eyes shut down, and that's why you get tunnel vision. Right. But anyway, and you get stupid. So, um, all right. Well, Christy, as a 121, as an airline pilot, you know, in Lola, I don't have emergency oxygen masks. Um, what what are those like in a, a Learjet or a, or a Citation jet? Um, are they within reach? Um, are you able? Are, are you supposed to be able to grab and don those masks in a certain amount of time? What are the rules uh, uh, around the the jets, the one thirty five operations, or even ninety one Learjet operations? Um, I know that it's it's part of the certification of the airplane. I know in one twenty one we have the quick donning masks. We had okay. those in the Citation as and well, and they look like something from the movie Alien, right? Oh. Um, I mean, sort of. They're just their mask, but they're they're designed so that you can literally pull it out within like a second, and you put it on. You rip off your headset, you put on the quick donning mask, and it seals around your face. And it's supposed to be like that. So yeah, and that's one reason why guys can't have beards. Um, I mean, that's the. Are they loosening that? Uh, that's the theory. I do know that there are cargo airlines, and I a Hawaiian Airlines actually allows, and a lot of foreign airlines allow. Yeah, it as they well. allow their pilots, but I mean Hawaiian Airlines is a U.S. carrier, and oh, they true. allow their pilots to have facial hair. 
Well, you can have mustaches. Well, you're right, but they allow them to have beards. Okay. That I do know because I had a friend that worked for Hawaiian, and I was like, whoa. I go through. We have a stock video library that I use for uh, supplementing some of the B-roll on some of the taking off videos. And I've got this all this pilot footage that they have on there, but the pilot has a beard. And I'm like, I'm going to get so slammed if I use that footage. Right. Yeah, exactly. Unless they're like a very specific cargo carrier, I think. Like Southern Air or one of those carriers yeah, okay. allows it, but but yeah, no, um, I think I want to say it's more about the prudence of it because it used to be as well that um, but prior to COVID, we used to have to wear oxygen masks above a certain altitude. I, was, I thought if, I read that too. Yeah, if if one pilot was not in the flight deck, so if you went, and I forgot what it was off the. Oh gosh, I'm having like a complete brain spasm, but. Um, basically if like, I know in the citation, if we were up at like 41,000 feet, we were going to have to wear these oxygen masks. But then after COVID, they completely changed it. Well, I thought I, in, in my research a, a little while back, I thought I read something about in some like 135 operations or whatever, uh, above certain, you know, 35,000 or whatever that right. one pilot had to wear a mask. Right. And that was especially if, um... I'm looking it You're up looking right it now. Up. Yeah, yep. I'm looking it up. It was especially if you had one pilot that got up and went to use the lavatory, for example, They if they left the flight deck. Okay. So let's go back now to the Payne Stewart uh, Learjet 35. Um, what could they have – what what would have happened if one pilot had realized what was going on and had grabbed the mask? Then they would have been – they would have received the oxygen and they would have been able to stop the climb and get the airplane down. They would have lowered the airplane. Yeah. Okay. So it says um, it's a part 135 requirement here. Whenever a pressurized aircraft is operating at altitudes above 35,000 feet MSL, at least one pilot at the controls shall wear secured and sealed the oxygen mask. Okay. Um, but they don't, we don't do that anymore. All right. So Payne Stewart's airplane continued to climb and it climbed all the way past 40,000 feet. Did it, did it oscillate? It come up and down? I think I vaguely remember something about that. Uh, I don't think it oscillated. So what it sounds like happened is they put the autopilot on. They had it set Climbing. to a climb, and it just maintained that climb. But what's really interesting about this particular case, so when when I fly the uh, 175, and again, layer 35 pilots, please chime in, Um we set the altitude, right? We did it in the citation. We do it in the, in basically every jet that I've flown, you set the, you dial in the altitude and um, the airplane will automatically level off at that altitude. For some reason, this airplane didn't do it. And I don't know if it's a limitation of that particular airplane with the autopilot or if they didn't set the altitude and all they did was just set a climb? A climb? Maybe, yeah, it was like, we're going to do a 2,000-foot-a-minute climb. Right, but without but without, without setting, a yeah, because um, I know some autopilots, you actually have to hit, like, an altitude button for it to, you know, get the get an altitude, I guess, out of it, but... Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. That's why I'm saying, like, I'm not a Lear 35 pilot. I've actually never been inside of a Lear 35. Well, other significant differences between this and the Citation 5 that crashed recently the 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 plane did not return to its origin it actually uh 
it, it went over the Cross City Fix and just went straight. So, so back then, 1999, they didn't have GPS as a, a common, right? Um, yes and no. But here's the thing with the citation is a lot of people are like, oh, it was just going to return to its origin. I don't think that's what it was doing. I think what the citation was doing was it it climbed up, it went to its airport, and then when basically because what will happen in the the 175, for example, is once you pass your fix and there's nothing else after that fix, it just reverts to heading mode. It keeps you on that heading. And if you look at that flight track for the citation, it just stayed on its heading. Coincidentally, it just happened to be about where the departure point was for the airplane. But it it took, when it crossed over the airport and it had nothing left in the GPS, it didn't revert back to its departure city. It just went to heading mode. So it just stayed on a oh, heading. Oh, so you think they probably had a heading. Oh, interesting. Right. Okay. And the other thing, so what I think personally, and I could be, I could be wrong, but in Payne Stewart's crash, they gave them cross city and then directed uh, Love Field. Okay. Right. But the airplane didn't do that. So I wonder if they were becoming hypoxic early on and they weren't putting in, because when a, when a controller gives us a, you know, if they say, okay, once you hit this fix, you're direct to whatever, we put it in the box. We, okay, after right, right, this, right. we but bring it in. A Lear 35 in 1999 wasn't going to have an RNAV or, you well, know. Well, it doesn't matter. The airplane's still going to fly the path that you put in. It, it's not necessarily RNAV. Well, it's I don't a know point what kind of point. flight management system they had. I, I mean, can tell you like because if, the, oh, okay. so the, well, not necessarily the Lear 35, but even in 1999, the citation that I used to fly had an early 90s universal uh, FMS in it, which is a very basic one, and you can still plug in your points. Okay. So if the controllers told them, okay, after this you're going to go direct to here, you can put that in. So the clearly the the complete flight plan was not put into any kind of if it had an FN, FMS system, which most likely it did, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it did. So they did not put in the whole system. Well, they either did and they didn't activate it or they were in the middle of doing something i'm wondering if they were becoming hypoxic and not realizing what was going on and just smashing buttons or something you know what i mean right like you said they were doing math and they thought they were getting the answers right but they were actually writing gibberish or whatever i wonder if that's what happened i wonder if they were like okay direct to you know love field and they were putting in stuff, but they just didn't put it in correctly because they were already declining in their mental faculties. Because why else would this airplane? I mean, even in the citation, the citation hit all of its points on its flight plan. This right. airplane did not. And the question is why? And so for me, that's when I think about it as a pilot, I'm going, okay, well, they didn't garbage in, garbage out when it comes to the FMS. The airplane's going to fly exactly what you put in, which means they didn't put something in. Right. They were either on heading mode and didn't go to navigation mode. They So they might have had it in, but they might have been flying uh, heading and not necessarily That's true. navigating And before they started getting incapacitated. And so they probably didn't think about it. I personally think that this airplane was having pressurization issues pretty much from the beginning. But the other question is, why wasn't there an oral warning going off? Um, 
especially early on in the transmissions with ATC, there's nothing in the background. That was one of the things that the FA, or excuse me, the NTSB looked at was where are the oral warnings for the altitude, the cabin altitude. We get those, you know, at 10,000 feet. They were at 230, no oral warnings. But then in the last 30 minutes of that CVR, you can hear the oral warnings. Okay, so the oral warnings existed in the plane. So they were clearly going off. You just, uh, you know, why didn't they listen to that when it went off when they were in that six minutes between responding at flight level 230 and... Right. So did they have a faulty oral warning system? Was it a gradual decompressurization that... I mean, there's just a lot of questions there. Yeah. Was it a rapid decompression where they just lost consciousness within like five seconds? We don't know. And the sad thing is, we don't even know the state. Of, maybe they were in the middle of grabbing their oxygen masks when they passed out. Maybe they grabbed the oxygen mask, but they were, you know, ooh, and, and didn't put it on correctly. We just, we don't know because unfortunately and tragically, the airplane and the, it was cr a crater when it crashed. It they fell out of the find, sky in three minutes. They did find some pieces. And I, I remember reading about that, that the... Um, uh, they were able to determine that, that the masks worked, um, but they don't know, you know, they don't know what happened. They have no clue. Yeah, exactly. They don't, they don't know specifically what happened. I've been in a situation where I was in a Citation Bravo with that when we took off, the pressurization system was not working correctly. And um, it was working, but then it would get stuck. And then it was working and then it would get stuck. And fortunately, very fortunately, we, I saw something that made, in fact, it was this accident that makes me so hyper-preventative on pressurization systems. Um, and I always have been. We took off. We're climbing out. I noticed that my ears felt kind of weird and different. And we're climbing and climbing. And it just doesn't feel right. And I looked at the little digital readout on the pressurization system and it was erratic. Normally it's a very constant like number on there, but this one was doing this. I mean, it was just coming up and down 2000 feet all the way down to like hundred feet, 2000 feet, hundred. And it, that's not supposed to happen. And I told my captain, Hey man, there's something going on here. So we level off, tell ATC we're leveling off to troubleshoot a problem. And we, he like reset the system thought that he got it working. We start climbing again and it's doing that again. I was like, Hey, this thing is not working. We get the cabin altitude warning. And at that point we realized something was very wrong. We leveled off, got back down under 10,000 feet and said we needed to go back to love field like ASAP. And it turned out that when we landed, we called the maintenance people out there. They looked at it and it had a faulty outflow valve. Mm that was getting, basically getting stuck. And so um, it was a very, I mean, that could have been a bad situation had we not had our mental faculties, had we been higher and it had started acting out. Yeah, that could have been a very bad thing. I'm very glad that so, it wasn't. So in the Learjet 35 Payne Stewart crash, um, the NTSB did report that the oxygen bottle pressure regulator was open and the masks were connected. So according to the evidence that they have, 
the oxygen and mask were available. Now, they don't know if they were used or not, but they right. were available to, right. the, to the two pilots. And we just don't know. I mean, if we just don't know. We don't know because nobody could see inside it either. We don't know if maybe they grabbed the mask. They just didn't get them on in time. We, we just will never know, unfortunately. So aftermath, um, of course, the company, the, the charter company, um, not only this is something we put a little bit into the, the video, uh, the investigation video, but the FBI gets involved and they go after the chief pilot, James Watkins Sr. And by the way, I think I could be wrong. And you guys who know more leave comments at YouTube on, on this podcast. I believe the owner of the company was James Watkins Jr. His dad was a senior pilot. He was using his dad as a senior pilot, I think. And the FBI was alleging that Watkins Sr. was falsifying the pilot um, logbooks so that um, pilots who maybe didn't have enough time and type for insurance or whatever, he was pencil whipping it. Mm. That's what the FBI was alleging, the FBI and FAA. And so for eight years, they investigated and chased after Sunjet and the Watkins. And it took its toll on Sunjet. And by 2006, Sunjet just could not keep their doors open anymore and they went out of business. I think they sold the assets or whatever. 2008, the FAA drops their investigation on trying to revoke the, the certificates of Wat the pilot certificates of Watkins and six others seven six other pilots at Sunjet and then uh, the FBI follows suit as well as far as dropping um, its investigation so at the end of the day the FBI and the FAA found nothing but they certainly alleged stuff for eight years and destroyed a company and whatever now I'm not saying the Watkins were innocent or that they were guilty I'm merely saying the, here's what happened the facts were the FBI and the FAA alleged in 2000 and 2001 to these discrepancies into this you know logbook um, pencil whipping and chased it, chased it, chased it, and then they dropped it for causal, no causal factors. So, yeah. that's sad. It is sad. I mean, but at the end of the day, I, I don't know enough about Sunjet Aviation, and there is very little— Yeah, they little... could be great guys. It could be crooks. We don't know. Yeah, there, there's not enough information out there, honestly. When I was doing my research for this story, to get a good insight with the company— um, they didn't have like I didn't find any interviews with prior employees or anything like that. Um, I gathered some information about the two pilots of four seven Bravo Alpha, um, Michael Kling and Stephanie Billa Garigu. Again, I say this in the video. I am so sorry if I mispronounce her name. I mean, absolutely no disrespect. Tell tell me about the pilots. So I know that Michael Kling, he was 42, 43, I think. Um, he was a prior Air Force pilot. And for all from all accounts, he was a very good pilot. He flew, um, I think, KC-135s and stuff. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. I mean, very good, very sharp pilot. Um, he was one of those guys that went into the Air Force and went into pilot training very young. Um, Stephanie... Her family was from Central America. Her dad was a doctor. They moved to uh, North America in uh, the 1980s. After high school, she decided she wanted to be a pilot. She actually went to Embry-Riddle. Okay. And graduated from Embry-Riddle. 
she was an up-and-coming pilot. Now, you have to remember that this was during a time where getting a job as a pilot was not necessarily the easiest thing. I mean, I think 99, it was okay, but it got really bad, obviously, after 9-11. But it wasn't great in the 90s. So it's not like she could hit 1,500 hours and then and go then, off to the airlines. And get you know? job right away. Right. In fact, you didn't even need your ATP at this time to go to the airlines. You just needed to be a commercial pilot with a multi-engine certificate. And um, she was building flight time. I could not find anything about what her goals were. This was before social media and before right. YouTube and, and all of that. But um, we know that she wanted to be a professional pilot and that she was very, very eager to get those flight hours and experience needed to continue climbing the aviation ladder. So to me that this is, it's so sad. It's just so sad. Two really good pilots, very eager, very experienced. I mean, gosh, Michael Kling, the captain, he was very experienced. I mean, Stephanie may not have been as experienced, but she definitely, from all accounts that I could read, she was, uh, had the right attitude. Yeah. And she, she was at 1751 hours total time. And, um, she had um, actually quite a bit of hours with Sunjet, 251 hours. And she had um, 99 as a Learjet second command, which isn't bad. Um, and so the captain, like you said, was in the Air Force. He had a total of 4,280 hours. And he had 60 hours with Sunjet and 38 as the pilot in command of the Learjet. Um, so uh, not huge, but not bad. And they certainly, it wasn't pilot error. Although the NTSB does kind of put it that, that their probable cause was because of the pilot's failure to get supplemental oxygen. So it, it's on the pilots to get, you know, when when the oxygen goes down, they've got to get those masks on. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was their fault that they didn't get it. As we know, I mean, obviously, I can't imagine a scenario in which both of them would not want to get it. It means that right. something happened that completely right. limited their ability to do that. Yeah. And so uh, the aftermath, um, of course, the two pilots we talked about, Payne Stewart, we talked about, it, Payne's um, agent and the agent's boss were on board as well, and an architect, the golf course architect. Um, so the, those were the four. And, you know, it was um, after an incredible year for Payne Stewart. He was third on the money list. He had just won the, the 1999 U.S. Open um, with a dramatic 18th hole putt against Phil Mickelson on Father's Day. Phil had just become a father. Payne was a father. Um, I remember watching that on TV and how in the midst of celebrating the win, Payne sought out Phil to give him a consolation hug, and he whispered in his ear. Later it was revealed that, you know, that becoming a father is, is a much bigger joy than winning the U.S. Open. Um and, and it was hard for Phil because he was known as the best player who has never won a major, which is, it, it's an actual an official, a semi-official kind of nomenclature on the PGA Tour. You don't want to be that guy. Right. And, um, and he was that guy for a long time, and he eventually did uh, shake that, but, uh, and he won a major. But uh, then he, Payne was on his way to Dallas to consult about a golf course build, and then he was heading down to Houston for the end-of-the-year big tournament that the top money winners would play in, and so he didn't make that. 
Um, he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. And uh, and the family that owned the land where the Learjet crashed. What, what? Yeah, in a true act of just unbelievable kindness, they actually donated that piece of land effectively to, to a memorial for the crash victims. Um, it's my understanding that that family still owns the land up there. They um, work together with the spouses of the individuals who died, and they created this nice little memorial for them, which I think is just, it's a very kind and generous act, you know, that kind they of brought these strangers together. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think, honestly, in addition to the obvious learning lessons about hypoxia and pressurization systems and things like that, the big lesson that comes out of this as well is that tomorrow is not guaranteed. And, you know, a lot like Payne Stewart, we need to, you know, maybe have those self-awakenings and live life to the fullest, love the people around us to the best of our abilities while we're here. Life is short. We just don't know how short. Yeah, those are good takeaways. All right. Well, thank you guys for watching and listening. Um, if you're you're on YouTube podcast, uh, we can only upload videos. So we've got that 360 thing going. If you're on Spotify, Amazon, Apple, all those other places for um, podcasts, then you're just listening to us and we want to thank you. And and uh, don't forget our sponsors. Um, they uh, are all listed on our YouTube channel. They're all run by aviation people. So we can keep it in the aviation family. Supporting them supports us. So uh, we really appreciate you guys. Um, yeah. Stay safe. See you next time on the Taking Off Podcast.